0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Hamid Ali, whom you may know as A.H. Almas, his pen name. Hamid was born in Kuwait in 1944. At the age of 18, he moved to the US to study at the University of California in Berkeley. Hamid was working on his PhD in physics when he reached a turning point in his life and destiny that led him more and more into inquiring into the psychological and spiritual aspects of human nature. Mead's interest in the truth of human nature and in the true nature of reality resulted in the creation and unfoldment of the Diamond Approach. And I think I'll just read, a, I'm sure you'll be explaining a lot about the Diamond Approach, but here's a quick summary of it. The Diamond Approach is a path of wisdom, an approach to the investigation of reality and work on oneself that leads to human maturity and liberation. Because of our particular vision of reality, it is not completely accurate to think of this approach as spiritual work for this work does not separate the spiritual from the psychological. Neither does it see these two as separate from the physical everyday life and scientific investigation of the content of perception. However, because we live in a society where the prevailing thought is that of the separated facets of reality, the closest category recognized in this mentality to our approach is that of a spiritual path or exploration." So good. And incidentally, uh, in preparation for this, I've listened to a number of interviews you've done, some very nice ones with uh, the Conscious TV folk, Ian and Renata McNay. And maybe yeah. I'll even link to those on your, on your page, on my site, mm-hmm. so that if people want some you know, more variety or, or, or depth in terms of your personal That's background, clear, yeah. They, yeah, they can yeah. find that. As usual, let's start, if you don't mind, with as much of your history as you feel is relevant to the discussion. That always fascinates people. How, how someone kind of first gotten got bitten by the spiritual bug, and what what kind of changes and challenges they went through as they you know as they moved into that direction and began progressing. Where would you like to start?
1: Interesting question. Because when you ask about my history, I wonder history of what, <laughs> which which part of me. There are parts that have individual history, which is probably what you mean, this part has the history of the universe, and which part has no history. So you mean probably the individual
2: history.
0: Well, I think it sounds like it'd be interesting to talk about all three, especially if you're implying that all three are part of your direct experience, like when you think of my history Is the history of the universe part of your experience, you know, that we refer to by that term? Yes. Good. The idea is that what
1: I am, you know, when you ask about your history, bring me back, what what am I, Mm -hmm. right? So, a good way to look at it is that I am both a formlessness, right? that is at the same time everything, everything is all time and space. So that's why it includes the history of the universe, because it's all time and space. At the same time, I am an individual being through which the formless experiences. And that individual being has a body and a mind and lives in time and space. And that has the particular history in earth. And then there is the indefinable, the fact that I'm not anything. I'm not anything, form or formlessness, and that you can't speak of a history.
0: I think almost everyone listening would understand and be able to relate to what you're saying because the people people listening to this show would tend to be familiar with such ideas. But for many people, if not most, those, the things you just said remain to a large degree ideas as opposed to direct concrete experience. And often on this show I, I try to emphasize that point that the kind of realization that we should really be interested in is not merely an intellectual understanding. It's something much deeper than that, much more experiential. And sometimes I think people mistake an intellectual understanding for some sort of realization. But I believe you're not referring to mere intellectual understanding.
1: When I refer to intellectual understanding, I'll be saying so. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes I do, and I'll make clear, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with you, and a lot of the things will be talking about some people understand, some people won't understand. It is the nature of spiritual experience that it it is mysterious and you don't really get it until you have the taste, until you have a direct encounter. Otherwise, you just form some ideas around it, which might be accurate or not. Mm -hmm. So, I'm hoping, you know, some people understand this, you know, I'm hopefully will understand something new, not just hear something they've already heard.
0: What would you say would be the practical outcome of them understanding this and hearing something new? Would you agree that that understanding in and of itself would not be of any great significance, but if it serves as an impetus to actually experiencing that? I always have a kind of a practical orientation to this stuff. I feel like spirituality is not just some pie-in-the-sky realization, but it actually has nitty-gritty implications in terms of one's life, and that understanding something, reading a spiritual book or listening to a spiritual interview, I hopefully would ha- actually have some practical outcome in terms of either inspiring a person to attain the same level of experience the interviewer is talking about, or clarifying their experience if they're already having it, something like that. Would sure. you, is that your I, orientation?
1: I, I, that's my orientation. I want people to benefit. I want people to benefit. Benefits are a different kind. Some people get the direct experience. Mm-hmm. Some people get a confirmation of something they already know. Some people just get an intellectual level. They're, they're all useful in various ways. So it's fine with me, you know. And It depends on how deep we go. If we go pretty deep, we'll lose most people. <laughs> If we stay in the general, the more people... I like to sort of get to some real particular things that are useful for people, instead of talking about generalities that people heard and read about all the time.
0: Oh, I agree. Yeah, that's yeah. good. So let's backtrack a bit. Yeah. I heard in your interview with Ian you were saying that you were a physics student and you were quite far along in your studies and. And there was some story about when you went into the dining hall at Berkeley and you saw all these eggheads sitting around having lunch, you know, and your feeling was, eh, it's, I don't want to end up like that. That doesn't do it for me. Exactly, yeah. That was an
1: interesting perception. I wasn't expecting it, realizing I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be just a smart brain, you know, and not much of life beyond that. And I didn't know I was thinking that way, but that was my impression that turned me around. I realized that's not what i'm going to, for a long time i thought i'm just going to become a physicist and be a research physicist or theoretician and i was studying general relativity and studying nuclear physics and i was really into it because i thought i'm going to find out what the truth is and then i found out some truth, but turned out it wasn't exactly what i was the truth i was looking for and that's true that turned around than individual minds.
0: So that kind of relates to what we've just been saying the last few minutes. That you, you realized that the truth that you were dis- the truths you were discovering through physics didn't go didn't go deep enough into your own direct experience. They 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 were merely conceptual, and that wasn't satisfactory for you.
1: Well, let's put it this way. I wasn't experiencing myself as an individual who's going through school. Mm-hmm. until at some point I recognize, no, I'm not really an individual, I'm this beingness that is at the basis of all of existence, it was experiencing itself as an individual. And it woke itself up at that point mm-hmm. to the fact that not the right direction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Although it has taken itself through scientific training because that was necessary for the function of what was to come later. So all the time it got spent in science, studying math and physics and all that was very useful. It's trained and developed the mind and the discriminating intellect to a way so that the spiritual teaching that ended up being taught can be taught with the precision and the rigor of science.
0: Yeah, I often wish I had been a better student myself. I was kind of flaky.
1: I see you're, in, you're interested in physics and
0: science, and you, you use those metaphors and those ideas. Yeah. I interviewed John Hagelin a few weeks ago. You know John from yeah. the, the conference. and The stuff fascinates me, but I have a very rudimentary layman's understanding of it all. But nonetheless, I think the point you're making is valuable, which is that there certainly isn't any conflict between the acquisition of relative knowledge and the... The sort of the training of the intellect and the and the, the discrimination in the regular academic context and spirituality, would you agree? Yeah, it's, it's not only not, uh, there's no
1: conflict. It's really it's useful, conducive. Or, yeah, condu- useful mm-hmm. because many people who get into spirituality they they have fuzzy minds. Mm. And their experiences tend to be, be, be sort of vague and generalized and uh, with no precise and clear insight or description of what the experience is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because their mind hasn't been trained that way, you see. They, they, they can't experience because the training of the mind doesn't only make precise and clear the thinking and articulation. But the actual experience, the visceral experience, it can become precise and clear and delineated. Mm. But the whole consciousness become trained like a diamond.
0: That's an interesting point, and it's one that I don't yeah. think has come out too many times in this show, which is that the culturing of the capacity for fine, subtle discrimination is an essential, or at least very valuable, quality on the spiritual path. It really you don't many, hear too many, many people talking about that. Many tradition do it. If you look at the Tibetan
1: tradition, for instance, if you look like the Gelugpa tradition of Dalai Lama, mm-hmm. part of their study is intellectual, they train the mind, studying the strict, and they do debate debates mm-hmm. between each other so that everything is clear. And then when they debate they they talk about a very fine thing, discrimination, because awakening and realization, it has, you have to be very precise and clear to know what is true, what is not. Otherwise, you write your subjective kind of emotion, can overlay it in a subtle way without you knowing it.
0: Shankar was famous for that too. In fact, he wrote a book called The Crest Jewel of Discrimination and he went around the country having these deep debates with other spiritual yeah. teachers and scholars. That's why I
1: like him as a Vedanta teacher. He, mm-hmm. he, he had a completeness that way in his realization. Yeah. He wasn't just saying, I'm the ultimate and that's it.
0: He also had a lot of heart too, I mean he you know, wrote all these devotional you know, hymns and, and so on, so he was kind of the complete package.
1: I agree, and it reminds me of another Vedanta, Atmananda, you probably read the story Mm of Atmananda. People always talk about the direct path that he taught. They're not seeing that in his own biography. He had to go through the various yoga, including Bhakti Yoga and Rajya, did all of that before he, his teacher told him, "Do do this, do this, do this, do this, before you first get into the direct path. And he did it, faithfully. He got opened up in so many ways before recognizing what's called a non-dual. He teaches a non-dual, but he's pretty experienced in so many things. These days, many people who call themselves non-dual teachers, they only know that part. They don't know the rest. But those masters, they know a lot.
0: It's a good point, and it's it's one that actually I'm very interested in and try to bring out in these interviews, which is that to my way of seeing things. Spiritual development is really multifaceted, to use again that gem metaphor. And there's so many subtleties and nuances and and avenues of development and avenues of exploration that um, it's kind of a shame really that sometimes it seems to get oversimplified and dumbed down, you know, to one thing and everything else is, is dismissed or rejected as frivolous or superficial or irrelevant. And well,
1: it becomes a dismissing in many people's experiences too. Mm, true. There's so, so much variety in experiences of spiritual experience, so much varieties of what's called awakening and realization, so much varieties of what's called enlightenment. people think it's only one thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It isn't one thing each tradition has their own path they really experience something they call realization it's not exactly what the other path experiences but there are realization there are liberation because the spiritual world is not that f- like the physical world where, it, where it's determined in the classical newtonian sense it is more like the quantum world mm. it's not determined it's dependent on the observer right and the yeah. quantum theory Nothing is there until you observe it. Spirituality is like that. It is like the spiritual nature is indeterminate until you experience. When you experience it, then it's real. However, the other person, person next to you, when they experience it, they experience something
2: different.
1: Hmm. Have you ever thought, how come a Vedanta teacher could be sitting in Bombay and experiencing everything as pure consciousness? And they say, that is the nature of reality. A lama sitting in uh, Tibet and experiencing reality and it's all emptiness. A Sufi someplace in uh, Morocco experiencing reality and it's all love. Well, which one is it? And they're all saying that I'm experiencing the ultimate, you see? So how do you answer that question?
2: They're all correct. Mm -hmm. They're all different. They're all different.
0: So is it a blind man and the elephant situation where they're all actually experiencing different qualities of the same thing? And so to step out of the metaphor, there is an ultimate reality, but according to one's makeup, one's nervous system, one's culture, one experiences different flavors of it? Or are you saying that there isn't an ultimate reality and that each of these guys is experiencing something deep and fundamental, yet somewhat different in in its essential nature?
1: I I don't think the blind man, the elephant applies because these are realized people who know reality and are liberated. Mm -hmm. They're they're seeing the full reality then. However, they're seeing it in one of its manifestations. You see, the ultimate is not a determined truth that has only one way of experiencing it. It's more mysterious than that, my experience, Mm -hmm. my view of it. Because I experienced in many ways myself, I experienced the Vedanta way, experienced the Sufi way, experienced the Buddhist way, it in many ways, and, and all of them are real, and they all say something about reality, and the liberation is complete and beautiful and all that. But then I've gone to the next one; it's really completely different, completely different, and it's a whole completely different view. It's like I have to use a different part of my brain or something. For a long time, I or dealing with trying to find a way to, how do you, how, what does that mean? First, I thought somebody must be, you got the right thing, the other approximation. But further learning, I realized, no, they are all approximations. Because the ultimate cannot be defined. Cannot be defined and cannot be known entirely. one experience because the ultimate is like a chameleon it presents itself in what I call different faces we can express experience one face at one time and face another face at another and you could keep saying well maybe I'll experience what's behind the face what's behind the face is another face and it keeps moving like that so you end up for me as as a result the realization is not the realizing one of the faces, the realization of the freedom for being to move itself from one face to the next without impediment.
0: From that, could we summarize or conclude by saying that human beings aren't capable of experiencing some ultimate universal reality without any kind of flavoring of it based upon their individual makeup, that there's always going to be like reflections uh, di- of the sun off different colored, you know, reflectors, there's always going to be some, some quality or some influence in, in, imparted into the experience by the individual's makeup. I,
1: I won't blame it on the individual. Okay. It's not because of the individual. That's the relativistic postmodern way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. I, I don't agree with the postmodern thinking. I think they don't know what they're talking about. The individual is not what determines experience. What determines experience is true nature itself.
0: True so being, through nature or true nature?
1: True nature. through nature or, or spiritual nature or mm-hmm. whatever you call it or the truth, the fundamental truth, is experiences itself in different ways experiences itself through those individuals so it manifests itself through a particular individual particular way because it's true that individual allows it to experience itself that way so you like like let's call being you use the word being something being is experiencing itself as rick right now so rick is giving being the opportunity to experience itself as rick and your office so it's being who actually experiences itself in different ways through a different individuals the individuals that's when you ask me what is my his what's your history
2: you know there is the
1: history of the individual which we can talk about which is useful everybody is an individual besides being the fundamental the individual is a lens through which being or the spiritual nature experiences itself, but it is being is really what manifests the individual anyway. What gives the individual, it's the individual particular proclivities and capacities. And it is the being that gives the individual its history. Like, how did I choose to study physics? You think, I thought it was a personal choice. No was being that put the individual through that course so that that individual will become honed as a particular instrument for being to manifest a certain way it knows itself and can express itself.
0: So what you're saying then, if I understand you correctly, is that being, if we want to use that word, manifests itself in forms through which it can experience itself. Am I I right so far? Well, yeah,
1: how else can it be?
0: Right, okay. And obviously there are millions of different kinds of forms and varying degrees of complexity and varying degrees of ability through those forms for being to experience itself. Am I right to that point?
1: Yeah, right according to my view. According to
0: your view. I want to make sure we're on the same page. And so then when you get to the human level, you have a fairly sophisticated form with a complicated brain and so on. And so the experience of being, it seems, and of deeper realities be, begins to become really significant. So what, we're, what we've been sort of batting around is can the form be so refined and modified as to allow that experience to become so so clear that being experiences itself in its fullness as it is without any coloration, or
1: distortion whatsoever. That's what uh, spiritual realization is about, yes. However, it is true, but that doesn't mean it is only one way of experiencing being in its fullness. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: As I said, the Vedanta way of experiencing being in its fullness, it is being in its fullness, but it is not the Buddhist way of experiencing being in its fullness. So, you That's would say that. a difficult, then, oh, difficult to... thing to wrap one's heads around.
0: Yeah, but yeah. it's fun to try. Yeah. <laughs> so, you would say that the Vedanta way and the, the Tibetan Buddhist way and the Sufi way, they're all experiencing being in its fullness, but they, there's a different flavor to it somehow based upon that particular path or that particular culture.
1: It's not based on the particular path or particular culture. Being created the culture and the path right. to manifest itself in that particular way.
0: And to experience itself in that particular way.
1: That particular way. So for instance, the Vedanta, the experience, the realization is being is a pure consciousness. Sachidananda, right? Mm-hmm. Being, consciousness, bliss. For the Buddhists, that sounds good, mm-hmm. but that is only a step. For them, being is clear, empty awareness. Transparent and non-existent at the same time, and uh, hence not, nothing has true existence. Only the appearance of existence. So they call that pure awareness, mm-hmm. characterized by emptiness, which is a very different. I mean, when you experience it, it's a very different flavor, a very different. Everything is transparent. Everything is really empty. There's no gravity. Everything is sort of nothing. Nothing exists. When I say nothing. I mean, everything has the nature of non-being. The emptiness of Buddhism, which is rarely understood, when Buddhist Dalai Lama says the, the, the absence of inherent existence, they mean you experience the thing, but you realize it doesn't exist, that its nature is non-being. Vedanta doesn't go there that much. They mention it once in a while. For them, existence is the real thing, you see? Existence and non-existence are very different ways of experiencing. Existence has a fullness, has a richness, and has emptiness. Non-being is more spaciousness, more nothing. And that nothing is brings out the luminosity, the clear luminosity of everything. But they're both non-dual, yeah. they're both non-dual, yeah. yeah, but they're different. And I appreciate both. I thought they're both a good contribution to reality.
0: Yeah, I do too, but I, I still, well, I'm going to pursue this with you a little bit more. Like, you know, yeah. on a superficial level, you have religions fighting each other, and that's been going on for a long time with wars and, and, and arguments, even within uh, particular religious groups like the Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, you know, and that to me is pretty superficial level, because none of them are real mystics. They're, ju- they're just battling over you know cultural differences and belief differences and so on. But then even when you get to the mystics, the people who are actually focused on experiencing this stuff, you see these sorts of differences that you and I have just been discussing. And so the question that keeps coming to my mind is, and actually even among the mystics, some of them will say, well we've really got a fuller truth than those guys you know they they only took it so far and now we're taking it farther to realize these things so what I'm wondering is is that true are there sort of qualitative differences between different experiential schools or approaches or Is it really, as we've been suggesting, just, you know, you can't say one is deeper or more complete than the other, they're just different ways of experiencing based upon whatever causes those differences?
1: Good question. I've worked with it for many years, and I have my own solution, my own understanding and realization around it, which is true. different schools different religions adhere to their truth as the true truth. And others may be good, but they're all approximation. And they all say it, you know, the Lai Lama says, I'm Buddhist because I think it's the best path.
0: Yeah.
1: You see, he says that. And in some sense, they have to. You see, he has to. Well, He has a position. But the thing is, there are differences. And that is where the postmodern philosophy comes in about the identity and difference. The spiritual teaching, they haven't integrated the postmodern view, where there can be difference and identity at the same time. We can be different, and we can be friends. And the true realized people are friends, even though they know they are different. When you get outward to the religious part, who don't have the experience, they don't have the realization so that their hearts are not open, their minds are not open, they're prejudiced. But that prejudice can seep even into the mystics to some degree if they have part of them that are not clarified so they get to stick to their way of looking at better than the other they realize, a truly realized person, they don't care who's better than the other they're happy for what they are, what they know they're happy with their path, it did, it worked, I'm free the other person, if they're free, great, if they're free, different from the way I'm free we'll be good friends, we'll learn from each other in fact, I like that there are differences, otherwise it's always going to be the same thing, boring. The fact that, in fact, you might have noticed, I've been having dialogue with different teachers from different traditions, because I think there need to be dialogue between these people, because they can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to have dialogue so that they come to see they are talking about the same thing. No, I but I, I think people should bring out their similarities and also differences. The, the similarities make them friends. The differences make them. Give them something to talk about. That's interesting. So spirituality is pretty rich, you see. And we are living in a world where many spiritual teachings are here. Before, they were all isolated, each one in their place. So they could say, we are the thing. It's a hysterical relic from those times when each teaching didn't have really much competition. But now they're all here, hundreds of them. And everybody's saying, I got it. So we have to find a solution for how to deal with all of that especially if you're exposed to many of them, like the way I have been. Well, me too. I I talk to somebody different
0: every week. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. You talk with, so how do you make peace with it? You see,
0: I make peace with it by just feeling that, um, you know, as Jesus said in my father's house, there are many mansions, uh, that the, uh, the path, the path of spirituality is multi-dimensional and that everybody, is progressing in their own way, in the, and you know. But I, I do sort of have a bias, which I'm been kind of hinting at here, which is that it's like you know, rivers all coming to the ocean. Eventually, they all merge in the same ocean. And I wonder if you were to get Jesus and Buddha and Krishna and all you know all these great spiritual founders in the same room together. If they'd all say, if, after some conversation, they'd realize, yeah, we're totally experiencing the same thing. It's all, we're, we're just from different cultures, but it's really only one reality that we're all living and experiencing and teaching.
1: I think they will say more something like, well, reality appearing through this individual in a different way than you. But it has the same principle, the same basic, like they all have compassion and love and clarity and intelligence and, and selflessness and all. They're all the same, but there are also significant differences. So I think they will, if they all get together, they'll have very interesting conversation for a long time because they're all going to be learning from each other. Yeah. They're not just going to get together and say, oh, we're all talking about the same thing. Well, what they'll do then?
0: Well, I agree. And now you just said, reality appearing differently through all these different people. But then the question is, is the reality itself different? Or is it just appearing differently through the different people?
1: It is one reality. right? But the reality does not show its true ultimate essence. It, it, it doesn't have a true ultimate essence that is experienceable or knowable. What is knowable is one is the ways it manifests itself. Mm. See, I know that I know reality in many ways, but I feel there are still many other ways I could I could see it, and none of them will be the final one. You see, one thing about this perspective I'm giving you is that there is no endpoint.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It it removes the endpoint, removes the goal, as matter of a, Greater maturation, openness, and freedom, so that life becomes a life of discovery. Mm-hmm. Discovering being in the way of being, and it is, you know, I'm not discovering being, you know, being is using this individual as a lens through which to discover itself, because being loves to know itself.
0: Uh, I think you just nailed it in that in that last thing you you pretty much answered what I've been getting at. I don't think I could do justice to reiterating it, but you know you basically just said, you know reality is ultimately one reality, but there's never going to be sort of any kind of final universal experience of it that everyone could agree on because we all. Experience it, uh, different flavors of it according to our makeup or whatever it is that causes us to experience. There's always and there's always going to be exploration and discovery. I think that's that's really valuable too.
1: Depending on the makeup that being itself has created for it, yeah, in, in order for it to experience that particular flavor, right? You see, being functions in both time and space. So, because we have the now, but there was the now of two minutes ago, the now of, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. It's always being. Being contains all of those times, and it is, its intelligence is unimaginable.
0: Let's move on to talking about intelligence, since you just brought up that word. So far, we haven't really dwelt on that quality, but I think it's really important, uh, rather than even just Asking a question here, which, in which I might start pontificating. Let me, l- let me just ask, invite you to say a bit about intelligence.
1: Well, first of all, the way that being manifests itself through this individual you, you're talking to is that first it showed being has particular qualities, particular flavor, as you said. I call them essential qualities or aspects. And each one of them reveals something about being. And these are qualities that human beings can relate to. Human beings that still not realized can relate to, like compassion, right? People can relate to love. People can relate to love. Right? Power. People can relate to power. Clarity. People can relate to clarity. People cannot relate to consciousness or emptiness easily. But tell them love. Oh yes, I want love. I want to be love. And but tell them emptiness. Most people mm, that sounds uninteresting. Tell them consciousness. Well, everybody got consciousness. What's the big deal? But if you tell them love, you tell them compassion. You tell them strength. Tell them power. Tell them intelligence. These are the stuff that human beings need to live their life. These are what I call the perfections of being, implicit in being, but can manifest them specifically in one's individual experience so one of those qualities that manifests is intelligence because each one of them shows something about being throughout all of manifestation of being when it shows compassion doesn't mean only at that time it's compassion it's whichever way it experiences itself however it can manifest itself as pure compassion with tenderness and softness and empathy and attunement you see and sensitivity it can manifest itself as intelligence, and then it's brilliant. It's economical in the way it operates. It is like the whole system is become sort of oiled. Your brain is oiled, your nervous system is oiled. Everything moves smoothly like silver. It's like not silver, like mercury. Mm, super fluid. Super fluid. <laughs> And you recognize what is intelligence. Intelligence is a quality of being, which means characteristic of being. And that intelligence can manifest as a quality that a, a particular human being manifests. Let's say a human being has intelligence. When, you, when a person is being intelligent, you look at them, their face is shining, their forehead is shining, because intelligence is brilliance, pure brilliance of light. Like people sometimes see brilliant light. What is that? Why is the brilliant light different from love, golden light? Brilliant light has to do with intelligence, intelligence of being. Pure brilliance that is like, it's it's a fluid brilliance, the way Mercury is, like superfluid. But that's a being manifesting its intelligence in an explicit way for it to know it through particular individual, individual. And it shows that... Being is characterized by intelligence, pure mm. intelligence. It's beyond the intelligence of what human being call intelligence. What co- human being call intelligence is the outer expression of that intelligence.
0: It's way beyond it. Yeah. All the technologies in the world couldn't create a single human cell from the raw ingredients that make up a cell, and all, yeah. the, all the computers in the world combined couldn't govern the functioning of that cell once it's been created. And yet yeah. we consist of trillions of cells, all sort of functioning properly within themselves and, and among themselves. So what level of intelligence would have to exist for, for that to happen?
1: Yeah. And it's not only that, it's a non-thinking intelligence, non-deliberative intelligence. It's organically, spontaneously functions. And it's functioning, spontaneous, without deliberation, is. Totally intelligent.
0: Because hmm. thinking and deliberation are human yeah. faculties, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thinking deliberation, but that is one of the ways human beings experience intelligence. Thinking and deliberation and insight and research and all of that. But the intelligence of being is behind that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is invisible usually to most people. But we can experience it. We can experience intelligence as intelligence. I can experience myself as pure intelligence. My being can be all intelligence, pure intelligence. I'm experiencing being then. It's not the intelligence of the mind or of the heart or the body. It's just the pure intelligence that is non-conceptual, that is non-deliberative, that is very organic, very organic in the spiritual sense, totally spontaneous, totally in the moment. But it also considers all time and all space. It's intelligence of being has the knowledge of everything, everywhere and everyone. Think of it that way.
0: So it's omniscient.
1: It is in touch with omniscience. So it's intelligence. It's upper intelligence because it knows everything. Now when I'm intelligent, I'm not knowing everything. I don't have the capacity. The brain doesn't have the capacity to know everything. But the intelligence, the underlying intelligence, is informed by everything that ever happened that will ever happen. So, it operates in amazing and in infinite, let's call it infinite intelligence. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's also omnipresent and it's omnipotent. It can do anything. It's obviously doing everything. So, it sounds like we're talking about God here.
1: It is close to the idea of God. Mm-hmm. It is doing everything. If it is not doing everything, then who is doing the other things? Right. You see, that's the one thing I sometimes think some of the non-dual teaching don't address. Which is, they say, there's only non duality, there's only one reality. Then, however, when they talk about unenlightened people, they say, What's well, their ignorance? They're ignorant. Well, who's ignorant? <laughs> if, if, there is, if there's only one being, how can there be another person who's ignorant? They blame the ignorance, the difficulty on individuals. In fact, the moment they say, You're ignorant, that's why you're not enlightened, they have ratified you as a separate individual mm. mean they have abandoned their non-duality non-duality is an experience has not pervaded the mind has not pervaded the thinking and the philosophy so in reality is always done by the same beingness including the mistakes including the ignorance being is ignorant in satan location and through in in time through certain practices or life circumstances it wakes up in that location but it is always being nobody's fault and even when you practice and you put your heart into it and you think you're doing it yourself which being lets you believe that because that's its way when you wake up, you realize that you haven't done any of it because you never existed as that separate individual. Being has been doing it all the time.
0: Would you, um, in your own experience, distinguish between self-realization and God-realization? Would self-realization perhaps be the sort of the cognition of the abstract, unmanifest, pure being or consciousness, whereas God-realization is a more advanced or more rich appreciation of the intelligence that we've been talking about, almost an observation of its governing activity in the universe?
1: Well, I don't use the word God that much. Okay.
0: It's a so. kind of a simple three-letter word to kind yeah. of summarize a lot of what you know, we've been I saying mean, here. It,
1: it sounds like we're talking about God, and, mm-hmm. and I think many people, they will call it God-realization. And some of the Indian tradition talk about God-realization. You know, like Mahar Baba was not only God-realization, he was God incarnate, mm-hmm. for instance. Avatar. And, uh, and he even said, I make the stars move, I'm the one who's making you think those thoughts and all that. Mm. It is true, there is, because there are many kinds of realizations. So even realization of consciousness or of awareness, there are many kinds. And there is a realization of realizing how things happen. Like, for instance, in dual, non-dual realization, when you realize everything is one, right? One, no no separation. How do we explain changes? How do we explain that somebody is walking? It's all one. How can there be movement in it?
0: Yeah, well, some people use funny terminology. They'll say, like, uh, the being is walking or the being is walling or the being is flowering in other words it's just taking on this appearance of different things happening but it never loses its nature as being it just puts on this illusory show that is ultimately insubstantial and unreal
1: yeah some people say that why will being needs an illusory show if it is the master of creation
0: i can't answer that question
1: (laughs) yeah you see why i mean i know some of the vedanta say the individual is a convenient fiction needed by brahman to realize itself i said brahman the ultimate needs a fiction to know itself isn't that in western philosophy that would be considered illogical but many people believe it the fact of it there is a kind of realization i don't know if you read some of my books a kind of realism non-duality where you see how things happen, being in its beingness is manifesting everything all at the same time. The Big Bang didn't happen only three billion years; it just continues to happen. Every instance, creation is happening. So being is creating everything, and all dimension, all all simultaneously as one big picture, just like you look at the movie screen. Movie screen. It looks like anything happened, but the light is really creating all of it. And it looks like somebody's walking, somebody's fighting, so there's a car chase and all of that. But it's only the light that is manifesting all of that. The realization where you see everything is be- manifesting at this moment and is being basically manifesting its own appearance. It's changing its own appearance as a manifestation of the world. So that's how we see one way of understanding how change happened. The change happened from one frame to another, one frame of perception to another. That's the real change. So there's really nobody walks, no car chases. There's only one frame followed by another frame. That's how being functions. So then you could say maybe that's God, God creating. Them. I'm fine with that language, but I tend not to use the word God because everybody got their idea what God is. Mm-hmm
0: two questions come to mind one is can you ask the question why without getting into or can you answer the question why without getting into just metaphysical speculation that nobody can really answer authoritatively and the second is you, you know when you say being manifests the world does it really if you look closely enough at the world that is apparently manifested and analyze it you know deeply enough is there actually anything there other than being Are there really particles and and forces and so on? Or, you know, if as a physicist you you look at those closely enough and take them down to more fundamental levels, do you end up with the conclusion that actually nothing ever happened, although it appears to have done?
1: Well, at whatever level of perception you look at it with a microscope, or telescope, being is creating that is manifesting that. It's manifesting the telescope and the microscope, the elementary particle and whichever it basically being is manifesting experience. That's what's manifesting. We, we don't say it's manifesting the stars, it's manifesting our experience of the stars. We don't know whether stars look the way that we see them.
0: Right. You know? and they're gonna we look different to us know. than to a moth or to a yeah. you know a giraffe or whatever. They're, yeah yeah.
1: Yeah. So the most we can say is that Being is manifesting our experience of the world at the present time. Mm
0: -hmm. So it seems that Being appears to create a manifestation and it creates beings through which that manifestation can be experienced and yet when we look closely enough is there really a manifestation and are there really such beings or is it all really just Being functioning within itself kind of creating these apparent Phenomena within itself, but which consist ultimately of nothing other than itself.
1: You can see it either way mm. or both at the same time. In the sense that, as I said, being manifests experience, it can manifest experience in such a way that there is only being, and all these things are simply how being appears. Or being can manifest itself as somebody walking in the street and driving a car. They're all accurate ways of how being is manifesting itself. That's how being is manifested at that time. How else could it be? Yeah. So they're all true, all accurate. Being manifests itself in many ways. Dual, non-dual, and otherwise.
0: Or at least it appears to.
1: <laughs> no, that's the way it, it's manifesting itself. It appears to itself. Being appears to itself. You see, what we do as human beings is that we have a thinking minds, and we remember, and we say, well, my experience then was this way, and now this way was dual, now it's non-dual. Non-dual feels better than the dual. So the dual was a delusion. From the perspective of non-dual, the dual was delusion. From perspective of being, both of them are expressions of being. Mm. It doesn't say one is deluded and one is not, because it's non-duality, actually. There are other forms of realization where non-duality is seen as a delusion. Because the basic premise of non-duality is that there's no separateness, mm-hmm. right? There is no separate thing. Well, but there are realizations, you know, Rick, where the question of separateness is irrelevant. I'm not separate from you but I am separate from you. I'm neither separate nor not separate. Nanda will say that we're not separate. We're one. We're connected somehow through this medium of consciousness. But that is one way of realization. Another way of realization, there is you and there is me. The question whether we are separate or not is irrelevant. It might happen or not happen. The fact of it' reality, who's going to judge it? Separateness is a concept. Non-separateness. Is a concept, the polar opposite of separateness. So duality is a way of experiencing things. Non-duality is the opposite way of experiencing them. Both of them are conceptual. Reality can experience itself completely non-conceptually. When it is non-conceptual, it doesn't say anything. There is you, there is me. Are we separate or are we not? Who cares? The fact that we're talking and we're enjoying each other and I could feel the heart is happening, because of the openness you see separateness separateness no it's good to experience non-separateness to be to be free from the fixation of separateness but after that if you stay there being is constrained is not free hmm. it can only manifest non-separateness but there are other ways of experiencing reality where separateness and non-separateness are relevant there are other ways also of experiencing non-separateness for instance you see that's the view I'm trying to bring, you know, Rick, because there are many teachings, each teaching has a way of realization. I'm thinking all of them are useful, each contributes. And each situation might require the response of a particular realization. So some situations require a non dual response, some situations require what I call a non local response. Some situations require a non-conceptual response. These are different kind of realization. Some situations require a theistic response. So why not have all of them available for being to manifest? Itself? That's why I call freedom. Being is free to manifest itself whichever way appropriate, necessary for the situation.
0: That whole perspective really resonates with me, and I, I like the word paradox because you, if you take all the different realities and perspectives and vantage points and just put them all into one big basket. If the basket's big enough, they all manage to coexist in there, even though if you look at them and compare them, you can see, well, this is the complete opposite of that. How could they coexist? But in the great wholeness of things, they do very comfortably. All these different levels and perspectives and paradoxical realities ultimately all get along just fine.
1: (laughs) that's what I call the view of totality. The view of totality is the total view that allows all possible views and then recognizes that they're all real and they all have a contribution without having to adhere to any one of them.
0: Exactly. One man's meat is another man's poison. You know, I've actually heard spiritual teachers say they maybe they've been asked about global warming or something, and they say, "Well, that's not relevant to me." And the world obviously ultimately doesn't exist it's like a speck of dust, so why should we concern ourselves about that? There's a beautiful quote I came across recently. It was by a Buddhist named Padmasambhava or something, and he said, "Even though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour." You know, so it's like every every little thing has its significance, every little bug walking across the street. The the vast view doesn't in any way obviate or contradict or render insignificant the particulate view.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think from the perspective of the view of vastness, to experience oneself as a vastness, seem all these things are insig- not only say insig- they're all the same. They're called equal, you know would called one taste or evenness. Everything is the same. However, that doesn't consider that the differences between things are significant. Because that's another realization, not the realism of vastness. This is the realization of what I call radical non-locality, which is that radical non-locality is a view that is known by some teaching in ancient times. It's not that prevalent these days, which is a kind of non-duality, but not exactly. Which is, not that you and I are not separate, but more like you and I are inside each other. Mm-hmm. I am in you and you are in me. That, what it, what it does, it eliminates the concept of space. Mm-hmm. The main thing about concept of space, Rick, is distance. There are distances between things. So, the usual uh, non-dual view preserves distance. Even though we are connected, there's somebody in Bombay and I'm here in Berkeley. The radical non-locality is no. Bombay is right here in my heart. Because there's, the distance between them has been completely obliterated. Because the spiritual nature has no distance in it. In it. It's not small and it's not large. So, when you have that view The individual or particular come into prominence, which doesn't in the non-dual of you. Come into prominence so the individual, you, becomes important because you're you're different and unique than me and everybody else. And you express being in a different, unique way. So the human being consciousness is different from the consciousness of an elephant or a bug. Although from the non-dual view they are all equal, they all appear as manifestations of the same reality. But from this perspective, you are different, and your uniqueness is important. And that is something I'm always trying to bring into the spiritual discourse: the importance of the individual, like the individual, the uniqueness, and how they experience things. Is really It's true that being is the experiencer. And experiences through this individual. However, being cannot experience without having an individual to experience through. Right. So the individual is indispensable to being. Has a particularity. I, I saw some of your interviews, some of the non-dual people that you talk about, and they say, "No, you're not the individual. You're you're the formless." And they don't say anything more about the individual. And I realize this person doesn't have the knowledge of the individual. Simply because there is a whole knowledge about the individual, a whole realm of spiritual teaching. If you go to the Sufism, for instance, Christianity, Kabbalah, the individual soul is a big major part of their teaching. Mm -hmm. And it's an infinite ocean of knowledge. And people who dismiss the individual don't know that knowledge, as simple as that.
0: And ironically, I mean, it's by virtue of their having an individuality that I'm able to have a conversation with them. <laughs> you know, so if, if the individuality were completely dissolved, there would be nothing going on. No conversation.
1: No, it's not only no conversation, no experience. No
0: experience, no life.
1: Because, because if you look at experience, that's one thing I've, I've been thinking about. It's interesting. What's called the phen- phenomenology of experience. Mm-hmm that our experience is always characterized by a first personal givenness. Experience is always your experience. And it's happening within a particular space-time context. Even though it is being experiencing it, but experiencing it from that space-time context, and it is always your experience, not my experience.
0: Right
1: Now, how does an undual view account for that difference? How does it? Doesn't. doesn't account for it, it's just ignored, glossed over. And I include in that Vedanta, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, all the non-dual teaching. they don't address it, because they're residing in this ocean of non-duality and all of the particulars seem unimportant, and from that perspective it's true, it's not important. However, I learned that other realization where the individual is, there's a whole development for the individual. They even talk about that. Uh, there has to be maturation. What matures then?
0: Certainly not being. That's a, that's. Well, not gonna, being is already. Yeah, that's not going to change. Well, what matures? Would have to be the individual, right? What else? Yeah. And and, the, and, and all the various the components and faculties of it.
2: Yeah,
1: and, and we have to find out then then the science in what's the individual.
0: I think Kashmir Shaivism deals with this somewhat, but uh, more maturely, but I'm not really familiar with it. But that's what I, I'm told. I, I, but,
1: I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. From what I know, Kashmir they, they Shaivism, they talk about Jiva, the Jiva Atman. Mm-hmm. You see, the, nandu, the Vedantas, they say, oh, the difference is just mind, so your mind makes a difference. But they don't say, what is mind? Do they mean the thinking apparatus? And then they're giving mind an independent existence. However, in you know, Kashmir Shaivism and Suvism, whatever, they say being, or God, manifests its truth through organs of its own being, organs through which it perceives and experiences. And those organs learn, develop, and mature. And through ma- through their maturation, They become more transparent, more capable, so that being can experience itself more completely.
0: Yeah, I think that's very exciting, really. And and as you said earlier, I don't think there's any end to it. That really would be or should be or could be (laughs) the next horizon, the next frontier for many people who feel they've had non-dual realization is, in a way, that might be seen not as the end to the whole thing but as the beginning because you've, you've kind of established a beachhead or a foundation and now uh, a much more refined exploration can ensue.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good way of saying it right? because it really non-dual uh, brings freedom from the constrictions of the self
2: mm-hmm.
1: because the self fixates being on a particular way of experiencing just like don juan you remember don juan and castaneda's don juan yeah. talking about the bands of uh, emanations
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and that the ego just has stays in certain band and you want to expand the bands of reality so that's what happens the ego is focused in certain band which we call dualistic experience it is not a delusion it is just one way being can experience itself but the ego keeps it in that band. that doesn't allow being to shift perception to a non-dual view. Mm. And then to shift perception to other views that are non-dual, what I call the non-local. The non-local, by the way, is the experience, not that everything is one, but everything is singular. Meaning each point of time and space includes all Points of time and space. You ever hear of that?
0: Well, yeah, I was thinking that a little while ago when you were talking about something very similar, and it kind of reminded me of that notion of the holographic universe. Which, yeah. you know, if if being is if the container of everything, then being can't be sort of you can't say take a handful of being. It's, being is is just one solid block, so to speak, one solid it's- omnipresent mass of being, and so. The handful, so to speak, if you could take one, contains the whole universe as much as being in its entirety contains the whole universe.
1: And that's the importance of the individual.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: As an individual, you contain the universe. As an individual, without getting bigger or smaller, you are the totality of being.
0: Yeah. I have a friend named Jerry Freeman whom I interviewed, you might want to watch that one, but he's had this experience of being a walking Mm -hmm. universe. That's that's kind of the nature of his experience, that the totality is contained within his individuality. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: that That is what I I mean by non-local experience, Mm -hmm. because being has no size or shape. Not only they say it's beyond time and space, but then they bring in space, their experience. Mm. You see? They're not beyond space. Right. Because their their metaphor are spatial. They say it's everywhere. And from the non-local, there's no everywhere. <laughs> everywhere is a concept.
0: Yeah. We use they, words to try to talk about it and concepts yeah. to try to talk about it, but obviously what you're just saying is very apt. We dumb it down by... We, we be, immediately begin to give it spatial and temporal qualities, which it really doesn't have.
1: That brings in another point, which is enlightenment always has delusion.
0: Elaborate on that, please.
1: That's actually the first person who said that was Dogen. You heard of Dogen? I've heard of him. The founder of Soto Zen. Mm -hmm. He said enlightenment has delusion.
2: What does he mean by that?
1: Always delusion. Just look at it this way. Not delusion in the sense you believe you are a self. Mm -hmm. That's the humane delusion. But delusion, for instance, you have in you, you haven't thought of, You haven't yet known that you can go through the wall. From perspective of being, that's a delusion because you haven't known that. That's ignorance because it's possible. It is part of your potential Mm -hmm. to be able to go through the wall. Yeah. One can be realized and enlightened and free, but hasn't actualized all the possibilities of being yet.
0: Right. So I guess it sort of depends on how we want to define enlightenment, how superlatively, we want to use that term. What you're saying is that the way in which it's ordinarily used does not necessarily include all kinds of possibilities that could unfold as evolution continues.
1: The way it's defined is the beginning. Enlightenment is the beginning, but then how does life happen after enlightenment? Does the enlightened condition continue to be the same forever and ever?
0: I don't think so. (laughs) Well...
1: I mean, people talk about, how do you bring an enlightenment to life? That's what brings the question. That's how I found out. When I experienced an nondual the vastness and all of that, and was living in it for a few years, then there came the question, how do I walk? How do I talk? And how do I talk from that place? And how do I interact with other people, with my wife, with my family and friends and my students from that place? And so, in the process of learning that, the realization itself changes.
0: Was it a little difficult to learn
1: that? Yes, there were difficulties because I didn't know. So there were difficulties, there were uh, basically the delusion appears as an obstacle for a while. When you're feeling the need to go to the next step and you don't know it, it appears as an obscuration, And you have to see through the obscuration before you go to the next step. And then I realized that to be able to function from that place, first of all, is incorrect. You don't function from that place. The place itself changes for functioning to happen. That place, that vastness liquefies and becomes like liquid that flows. Remember the Terminator movie?
0: Yeah, he becomes like, he melts the down.
1: T-1000, <laughs> right. he
0: melts and shapes, that's yeah. what happens. Next thing the you know, he body, becomes governor of California.
1: Yeah, so that vastness, shapes itself into a body that is always changing its configuration. So I thought to learn to move, the realization itself has to to show more of its implication, of its possibilities.
0: So there's two components here. There's the vastness, and then there's the individuality through which the vastness is lived. And I would tend to have thought of it in terms of the vastness or pure consciousness or whatever getting more integrated into the physiology so that you can function in a more normal way in in ordinary life. But what you're saying is that the vastness itself, well, you you know, you just use that example from the Terminator. Maybe initially what you're saying is the, the vastness is experienced in a certain way, being is experienced in a certain way, but then as the experience matures, it does become like liquid and flows and thereby Permeates the the mind the physiology the intellect and so on so that it can be a living reality. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, because first of all vastness is not the ultimate condition of reality, right? It's just one of the, the ways quality of, of it It is one of the ways of experiencing being as yeah. vast vastness and, uh, Includes the concept of space right right if you exclude the concept of space What will you say about being? Will you call it vast? Vast means pretty big, infinite. But if you eliminate the concept of space, what is it?
0: You can't really say then.
1: It changes. Sometimes it's vast, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's particular, sometimes it's not. Depending on the situation. Being is like a, a magician, a chameleon. Keep mm-hmm. changing depending on s- circumstances. And that's why we have many traditions, many realizations. Because each one of them captures some of those manifestations and says, that's it. Mm. And it's true, that's it, that is reality, pure reality. It's not the creation of the individual mind. But being has infinite ways of experiencing itself. It has not yet revealed all its secrets. People say, Buddha is omniscient, knows everything. No, (laughs) he knows what Buddha knows. There's a lot more to know. Even in Buddhism, they have learned things Buddha himself didn't know. And we're, we're sort of someplace, I don't know, we might be at the beginning of discovering the spiritual universe, just like we are at the beginning of discovering the secrets of the body.
0: It strikes me at this point in the conversation that you were an example of someone who has proven that it can be very valuable to be eclectic, you know, to be open-minded, to explore all sorts of different things and not let yourself get locked into just one tradition or path, although I'm sure that has its value. Yeah, I feel called value. to do it that way. But, you know, uh, what the way you've gone about it has made you a very multifaceted, well-rounded, realized person, I would say, who is just comfortable kind of uh, with every expression of spirituality and, and who has kind of extracted the nectar from a great many of them.
1: Yeah, it's more like I didn't really extract the nectar. It's not the individual who did it. Being expressed itself in all these ways showed itself in all these ways, because it's, it wanted to develop a teaching.
2: Yeah. It's
1: bringing a teaching to this world, appropriate for our times. So it chose this individual, that's called Hamid, to manifest it through it. I am both the being and Hamid at the same time. Sometime I am all being, sometimes I am Hamid, but usually I am both. But the most interesting thing, I also don't have to be either one of those.
0: What are you if, that, you're, if you're neither one of that's
1: those? That's the freedom. I'm not anything. Think about that. I'm not anything.
0: So, let me probe you on that. You're saying that that is the nature of your experience at certain times? Sometimes you're me, sometimes you're being, sometimes you're both, and other times you're not anything. You, that's basically what you just said.
1: One of them dominates at one time or another, but it's always all of them there.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: Do, one of them dominate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm not anything dominates. So there is reality, there's everything. I'm nothing. I'm not the totality. I'm not the individual. I'm not anything. Not anything means there is no me. No me, whether form or formlessness. It is something that most people are very uncomfortable with. Everybody wants to be something. Even if that something is non-dual.
0: Although to be, a lot of teachers seem to make that the cornerstone of their teaching. They keep emphasizing, "There's no one here. There's no one here. There's no me. There's no you." You know, they go on and on like that. That that's the, their whole focus.
1: People talk about no one here, but they say they will say, "I am the non-dual. Mm. I am formless, and I know that experience." But there is another one which is a little subtler, which is, "I'm not formless, and I'm not form. I'm not formlessness. I'm not anything. Zero. Although all the rest exist and can be experienced. You see, I am the individual, is one realization. I am the formlessness, another realization. I am everything, is a realization. I am nothing, right, is a realization. I am nothing, is not the same, I am not anything. You see, I am nothing, you're still nothing. You experience nothing, yourself as nothing. I am not anything, you're not experiencing yourself as nothing.
0: And you're saying that these different things sort of come to the foreground and recede to the background, uh, they rotate, so to speak, according to the circumstances Uh, perhaps.
1: At at least in my condition, and I think it's possible for all human beings, but in this teaching, that's how reality manifests itself That's possible to be that way.
0: Do certain flavors of it tend to come to the foreground under certain circumstances? Like if you're driving your car, then the, the I am Hamid thing comes more to the foreground. And if you're sitting in meditation, then the I am nothing thing may be more predominant. It, does it sort of correlate with what you're actually called to do?
1: Yeah, it is a response to situations. Right. Right. It's definitely a definite response to the situation, although it's not one-to-one correspondence, like sometimes I'll be driving at the bridge, for instance, Bay Bridge, mm-hmm. and the experience is... There's
0: nobody here driving.
1: <laughs> not that, it's more like the bridge and the car and all of them are floating in me, the whole Bay Area, that one beautiful view at night, and I see the hands that are driving, I'm just observing all of it. I'm none of it. So that can happen. But sometimes, no, I'm the individual expressing being driving a car. Especially if if there is, you know, difficulty, whatever, I have to pay more attention. the, The individual comes more to the fore.
0: Sure. Do you also have one sometimes where you're in a situation where even though you see the bridge in the car to use that example, at the very same time you have this sense that nothing is happening, there is no bridge, there is no car, there's nothing, not only am I nothing, but there's nothing going on here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That, that's the realization of nothing.
0: Right, another flavor of it. The,
1: the way you should put it, is yeah. a response to Leibniz's famous question. He asks, why is there something? And the scientists, philosophers have been trying to grapple with it, why is there something? And the response to this realization is, there isn't. That's when you realize there's nothing there because everything is the nature of nothing. But that is a certain realization of emptiness, a certain kind of emptiness. Buddhists will call it emptiness, although it's not exactly the Buddhist emptiness of which is the lack of inherent existence. Yeah, I I am aware some people experience that there is nothing and nothing is happening. I remember the story of the 16th Karmapa, when he was in his deathbed, and he had one of his main students with him, was a doctor, and he was sort of crying. He said, Don, why are you crying? He said, well, no, you don't. he said, I'll tell you something, nothing happens.
0: <laughs> I have a feeling that a lot of the people who emphasize that point, and who say there's no one here, and, and all that stuff, their experience is probably a lot more like what you just described, which is when they're driving their car across the bridge, there is someone there, you know, there has to be to do this. It's, it's like different circumstances. We're like a camera lens that focuses in and out according to what the situation is. And sometimes certain realizations are predominant and other times they're more in the background.
1: Well, I mean, there are people who's established in the one realization or another. I think you interviewed with his name Tony Parsons, right, right, who talks about there is not, is all, there's nothing, nobody, and nothing. And I understand his experience is totally valid, but I see that's just one kind of realization. Yep, and he doesn't want to go to another way.
0: He's a one-trick pony, he, he, as they say. Yeah,
1: he's <laughs> he's very good. at That he's a good mm-hmm. you know exemplar of that realization, but. I know also I can be completely physical and be a body
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and experience the visceral muscular bodiness and that itself is a delight being wants to experience itself that way sometimes and that makes Satan interaction like sexuality wonderful if I am nothing you know why eat why do anything I mean everything becomes irrelevant which is freedom But sometimes I'll be sitting at the table, eating my salad, and all there is, is the taste of the salad. I'm not nothing. There's only the taste of the salad. There's no body, no restaurant, nothing, except the taste of the Caesar salad. That's another realization.
0: Interesting. So, you mean, in that circumstance, there's not even any visual input? You don't see the other diners and the waitress and so on? It's just taste of salad and nothing else?
1: if I close my eyes. Right, right. If I I open my eyes, I'll see them, but there's a feeling that nothing there. The focus is more the taste. So the eyes are closed, and then all the sensation disappear. The only sensation that will be left is the taste of the Caesar salad. It's wonderful realization to have when you're listening to music. Mm, yeah. Because there's only the music. (laughs) There's no listener, you see? No, somebody singing simply the music going on
0: i used to have it's that a, uh, a, on marijuana in the 60s and i remember the first, yes. the first time i heard sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club ban
1: exactly uh, tell uh, us that way <laughs> it gives you that possibility yeah. you knew that there was that way of
0: experiencing things if we summarize what you've been saying now for the last few minutes it would be to my mind that the realized state is not static It's not just one flavor, one condition all the time. It's fluid, it's malleable, it's adaptable. It it shifts uh, in its quality from one moment to the next according to what is going on, what one is experiencing, and so on. It's
1: It's like the transformer. Yeah, yeah. It's always transforming from one thing to another.
0: And yet as it does so, is it not true that there's a certain fundamental consistency? It's not like everything completely changes, but there's certain fundamental components or basis to it, and that may be more or less in the foreground or background, but still it's there. Kind of like, let's say, if consciousness were like a tone that was playing and it was going all the time and you know sometimes we're focused on something we get used to it we don't even hear the tone but the tone is still there if we turn our attention to it there it is is that a an apt analogy
2: yeah
1: i think that's a good way of saying it and also our discussion points to the importance of the individual mm-hmm. because the changes happen through the individual right individual i call it individual consciousness mm-hmm. Could people talk about consciousness Not knowing that consciousness can individualize itself. There is the ocean of consciousness, right? Whether it has a size or not, another point. But that consciousness can individualize and appear as an individual consciousness, which then can appear as an animal or a human being, right? And that individual consciousness can develop or can mature. And that explains what happens after death and beyond death. If there is no individual consciousness, there is no experience of the death. You have to explain, if, if there is no individual consciousness, then the first personal givenness of experience, the fact is orient oriented time and space has to be explained by the physical body. When the physical body gone, there is no experience then. Right. But we know that's not
0: true. Yeah. You mean people near-death experiences, things like that? Yeah. Ah. And even
1: experiences after death.
0: Sure past life memories and all kinds of things that people have. Well, you know, you brought up Tony Parsons a little while ago. His contention is that since there is no person ultimately here, there's no one here, that reincarnation doesn't happen. It's a crock because there's no one to reincarnate. You know, I would counter, and if I ever interview him again, I'll bring this up, that there is a level in which there is no individual, fine, but there's also expressed levels, as you and I have been discussing, and there's some subtle jiva or some subtle essence which could reincarnate. You can call it illusory ultimately if you want to, but...
1: Well, the thing, the one who was talking was Tony Parsons. Yeah. So what's he talking about? (laughs) What is Tony Parsons talking like that, not the chair in front, beside him?
0: Well, he would say there Ob- is no Tony Parsons, that, that it's yeah, just, but, but being but those, those, is just Tony Parsonsing. It, it's appearing as a Tony Parsons, but there really is yeah, no but, ultimate substance to it.
1: Okay, appearing as Tony Parsons, okay, but it is consistent and consistent through time, and it has the same mm-hmm. accent and mm-hmm. all of that, there's a continuity to that manifestation.
2: Sure. And,
1: and that continuity moves through time and space. If you really talk with him and use logic, just logic. You don't need even to have experience. He would have to see that it has to be an
0: individual. Mm, I don't know if he has to do anything. But, no, he, I mean no disrespect he, to Tony Parsons. He, he, I hope I'm doing justice he, to him. He's, he's
1: establishing his his realization, which is wonderful. It's a freedom.
0: Yeah,
1: which I appreciate. But I'm trying to bring the importance of the individual consciousness, because individual consciousness, just like being itself, can manifest itself in different ways. Individual consciousness has many stages of development which makes being be able to manifest different of its possibilities.
0: And I agree with you. I'm just using his perspective as I understand it to play devil's advocate. And I would argue that whereas what he's saying is is true on one level and, and ultimately maybe, it doesn't negate the possibility of all sorts of, like you say, the individuality and all the sort of subtle strata of the individuality, including some subtle body or essence or jiva that, that could in fact reincarnate from one life to another, or astral travel, or any of these possibilities that, of experience that people in fact have.
1: That experience continues beyond the physical body, because the physical body is just one way of being expressing itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Being will continue expressing itself after the physical body is gone, and whether it's reincarnate or continuous in different realms, for it to have an experience, it will have to have an individual kind of manifestation. Because the individual manifestation
0: is the organ of perception. Without you know, it, there's no, no perception. You know what would be interesting to do sometime is, is set up a two way conversation interview with you and Tony Parsons. Have you on? I don't know if you'd want to do that, but to have you on both at once in that.
1: Might be interesting, yes.
0: Well, think about that. You know, I, I liked
1: his view. I mean, I and I'm familiar with it. You know, and I can be with him there and agree with him and all of that. At the same time, I'll, I have other perspectives.
0: I'm the same way. I mean, I really enjoyed his book, and it was very clear and and you know really it, it enlivens something in you as you read it. You know that that perspective, but I just feel like there's more dimensions to it.
1: Yeah, because being is really the the truth. Mm-hmm. There's only being, you could say. But being brings out all this variety that we call experience.
0: I know you've, in previous interviews, like with Ian and so on, you have talked about the various stages of practice and and, uh, teachings you studied. And I don't want to go through all that in great detail because we don't have the time and people can watch Ian's interview on Conscious TV. Do you have a spiritual practice now? Part of the reason I ask is that some people have insisted to me that if one has really realized that spiritual practice becomes irrelevant, it becomes superfluous, there's nowhere to go, therefore why would you sit to meditate, for instance, or, or do anything? It, you just live it, maybe sometimes you close your eyes and enjoy a little silence, but spiritual practice drops off, they say.
1: I take the view of Dogen again, who says, realization is practice, practice is realization. Realization realizes further realization by practicing. So practice continues because practice is the way being lives its life truthfully. So practice can't be sitting and meditating, it can be just the way I am, the way I am living my life is a practice. So practice continues because there are infinite possibilities for being to manifest itself. So to say, well, I'm enlightened, I don't need to practice, I did that for a while, actually, How'd that and it didn't work very well because <laughs> it's like I realize that's true, but the thing becomes static, and when it becomes static, they become stale. So my main practice is inquiry. I just inquire into whatever the experience is happening to find out: Do I understand it? By understand it, I mean: Do I feel it completely? Do I sense its nuances? Do I perceive it? and what's in the way of, and of perceiving it and knowing it completely. That's what I mean by understanding. There's an ongoing inquiry and experience, but I also meditate, I, I, I do certain meditation, and I teach certain meditations which are useful. Meditation are useful to develop certain capacities of the consciousness, and there's no end to developing those capacities.
0: I heard you, you mention know. with Ian, that uh, you, you learned Transcendental Meditation at one point and you still like it. Does that mean you still practice it or you just think that was a good thing? A good I, thing?
1: Don't, I, don't, I haven't practiced it for some time. I did for a few years. I, I learned it when I was in college.
0: Right,
1: a long time and, ago. and got my mantra and did it. That's good, I liked it. And once in a while I sort of get into it. But my meditation and my inquiry are two sides of the same practice uh meditation when is when i'm sitting still uh, inquiry is when i'm living my life and things happen inquiry meaning there's something i don't see don't experience don't understand i question it and i question even the truth i'm experiencing well if i am experiencing thing non dual non-dually well what does that mean what the, is 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 this non-duality And what does that mean about my dual experience? That's inquiry. And even if I'm experiencing non-dual, what is the nature of the non-dual? What is the consciousness? Is is it just beingness? Is it just a luminosity? Or is it spaciousness? And if it is spaciousness, what does that mean? I realize, oh, spaciousness means there is a constant space. And if I see the constant space, that developed experience, oh, space has disappeared. The moment space disappears, I realize everybody's here. That inquiry for me, that's the practice and it continues.
0: What is the outcome of that inquiry? Do you have experiential breakthroughs as a result of that? I infer from what you're saying that this is a kind of a 24-7 process. You might be doing it while driving down the freeway or eating lunch or something. Yeah. It's just something that is automatically running in you. But what is the outcome? Has that proven to be really significant in terms of progressing to deeper, uh, more comprehensive levels of experience?
1: It's the central most effective practice I know, it is a Socratic inquiry developed to include spiritual qualities. So spiritual qualities express themselves as inquiry that includes heart, mind and body. So the mind with its capacity to discriminate and, do, and and know, the heart and its feeling and responsiveness, and the body with its sensation activity are all involved in the inquiry as a process of investigation, a process of just openness, curiosity, wanting to know what is reality. And there are breakthroughs. I'm like what people call awakenings, I call them breakthrough, quantum jump, quantum leap. And they happen every once in a while. You know. There is an ongoing experience that's always developing, there's always evolving, what people call the gradual path. But every once in a while, there's a quantum jump that people call sudden realization. And then it's like jumping from one universe to a parallel universe, sort of, and seeing reality through a different eye. So that continues, and once in a while, I thought I arrived at the end. You know, Just like everybody looking for the end, I arrived at so many ends. After a while, I gave up about the question of end. (laughs) It's really just my mind to think about ends. There's no no end. The idea of end is a human construct.
0: In the beginning of the interview, we were talking about how your education cultured in you and discriminative ability and so on that you found very valuable on your path. Do you feel that this kind of inquiry you've just been describing is something that just about anybody could do, or does it really require a more kind of intellectual or discriminative nature, and for others, other paths would be more appropriate? Well,
1: it helps if you have intellectual discriminator, but you do need training, just like any other practice. I teach it, I train people in it, I have teachers who train in it, and so uh, students learn how everybody comes and say oh inquiry i know how to do inquiry but it's not really what we mean because it is much more in depth much more inclusive than most people think inquiry is because most people think inquiry is intellectual inquiry the way i see it is a soul inquiry is a consciousness inquiry the consciousness questioning itself questioning its experience to see is this the truth what am i seeing is there some falsehood? Is there some beliefs? Is there some cultural programming? Is there some trauma there, for instance? So the inquiry opens up all these things. And, re- and as you understand them, meaning see the meaning of them, both experientially, viscerally, and intellectually, they usually open up to what else is there. So And the experience keeps deepening and revealing more of the possibilities of being. At the same time, I do practice meditation regularly. Meditation is like a support, it's a pillar of stability that supports the rootedness in being, where inquiry can take off as forays into different realms.
0: What would you say to those who argue, and there is a certain school of people who argue this, that the problem with practices and the reason they dissuade people from doing them? is that since practices are something that one does, they're only going to reinforce the, the sense of a doer and therefore they're counterproductive.
1: Yeah, that's because they haven't done a practice completely. Some teaching, like Dzogchen for instance, the original text of Dzogchen, the Kunji Jaba, said all practices delay realization and it goes through, brings out all the Buddhist practices. This one delays you this many lifetime. If you practice this one, it delays you 10 lifetime. If you practice this one, it delays you 20 lifetime. That's how it looks at like practices. That's how Dzogchen started. But since then, Dzogchen developed many practices.
0: <laughs> how do they reconcile that?
1: Well, because nobody could get it, uh-huh. the way it was first formulated. If you're really mature and developed enough in your consciousness, yeah, you hear the word, it happens. Mm. You get the transmission. You get, most people are not developed that way. So they developed all gun kind of practices now. Mm. The real practice, the way you know practice works, is the practice has inherent in it a self-destruct mechanism. So at some point, the practice becomes just living life. Mm. That is a real practice. Otherwise, it becomes something isolated, separated from life. And then that can constrain the development, can fixate it in some way. But true practices are developed by the genuine traditions. They have inherent in them, a self-destruct mechanism, where the practice takes the consciousness to a certain degree of maturation to reveal to the consciousness the practice now is not needed. You go beyond it, it becomes part of living.
0: So do you anticipate that at some point the meditation you do and even the inquiry you do will self-destruct because you will have gone beyond them?
1: They have self-destructed many times. Oh. They have self-destructed many times. But what am I going to do with my life?
0: So you pick them up again, right? Because they seem to still have some utility. Inquiry
1: continues not because I have to do it, Mm -hmm. but because I'm living life and I'm discovering new things. Yeah, And there is interest to taste different thing, inquiry, just like you know with food, you want to taste new things you don't have an answer. Every time the same thing with experience things change mm-hmm. as part of the dynamism of being is a dimension of being that's rarely mentioned which is a very important dimension. Dzogchen has it, they call it uh, energy or they call it uh, display being is always displaying and I think uh, Kashmiri Shaivism has it as Shakti that always creating thing which is experiencing that being is a dynamic, creative force with infinite potential, infinite intelligence, and infinite possibility, and always manifesting new things. And it is always enjoying and reveling in what is manifesting. And also, part of the enjoyment is imparting that to others and seeing them discovering things and getting turned on to it. Because it is the same being. It's the being is awakening itself in different locations yeah. by inventing in new ways, it's, see, and discovering new ways and discovering new experience. So the path I'm on is an ongoing, living, living path. Some people use the word living to mean it's not dead; it still has juice in it, and I use it that way. But there's another meaning of living. Living meaning is always growing. Right. There's always new possibilities, because the dynamism being is creative.
0: It is, isn't it? I mean, if we look at nature, it's, things never stay the same. There's always proliferation and morphing of evolution of species, and it just seems to be the way intelligence gov- governs this yeah. universe.
1: And we don't know whether the human body will continue to be that way or will evolve.
0: Chances are it'll evolve.
1: It will evolve. We don't know what it's going to be like in a million years. Mm. And, and the inner body, the individual consciousness, also a constant state of evolution. And that can outlast the body by millions of years. <laughs> you see, With all possible kind of possible experience and communication with other people. Mm. Like one of the things I've been interested in, for instance, inquiring into, is how to communicate... And guide my students after the body dies. Mm. See, many people don't think of that, but that's possible. And I don't wanna just leave the school. I'm, I've taught them well and many of them have love realization. We have many teachers, but I can see that I could continue being a force of influence. And but that acquires a certain skills, certain development of the consciousness. If you leave consciousness as it is, it won't have that capacity
0: well, there are traditions which talk about that, and um, yeah. in you know, teachers such as Yogananda and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who who said that their teachers are still guiding them. Yeah. And I would suggest that to you that the best way to be able to do that after you die is to just keep doing what you're doing. And when you get to the other side, you'll know what to do. But the, the, the more progress you've made now, the, the better you'll know what to do and the better you'll not, be able not, to not do Not only it. that,
1: I'm, I'm going to talk to Babaji. I'm going to talk to Padmasambhava and ask them how they did it, yeah. how they continue to do it. Because in that realm, there is communication. There is meeting and learning. Mm-hmm.
0: I interviewed a woman last week, um, Kristen Kirk, who uh, clearly remembers that her life before this one was one in which she was some sort of spirit guide or, or, you know, what do they call them? Just some sort of celestial, subtle being, and there was a whole group that she was working with, and now she's a human being, but she actually is in communication with those other beings that she was associated with then. This experience is very clear to her. I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt, and she seems very sincere, and I'm also open to all possibilities. So, kind of sounds like what we're talking about. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and people can't delude themselves about that. It's easy, but there is some truth to it. It's more like recognizing that the spiritual is not one monolithic experience or ground it's a whole universe just like our physical universe has many galaxies and many planets and all spiritual universe is the like mm. it has many realms many dimensions many ways of manifestations and different universes within the spiritual realm
0: i sort of get the feeling when, with different people it's, you know sometimes it seems that people just get a little caught up in all this uh, more esoteric stuff and it becomes a distraction or it becomes a A way of drawing attention to themselves and so on. But others, you know, they just have this very genuine, matter of fact, sincere feeling about them. And, you know, you're more inclined to accept the reality or at least the possibility of what they're saying. So I I would just throw that out there for those who might find the last few minutes of this conversation to be a little far fetched.
1: I agree with you. And I think one should focus on their present condition. Yeah work with that which, whatever practice so they can come to know what is them what is reality mm-hmm. and experience that freedom that liberty. that's fundamental all the other things they'll come in time icing on the we, cake. Don't, we don't need to think about them
0: right they'll come when they're when they're meant to come yeah
1: because yeah. there are appropriate for certain stages but not at the stage of practice
0: and so I want to just pick up on one more thing before we wrap up about something you said a few minutes ago about how this discrimination or inquiry that you consider to be, you know, the cornerstone of your own practice and and your own teaching, how it's not likely something that people are just going to pick up on their own uh, from listening to a conversation like this, or maybe even from reading your books. It's it's something I gather that needs some more uh, rigorous training. Is that right?
1: Requires training. I mean, some people can pick up some of it. You know, I've, I've written books in it, like. the I wrote in a book called Space Cruiser Inquiry, which is all about that inquiry, mm-hmm. the principles of it. And the, However, you know, it depends on the person. Some people can pick up something, but for most people, some training from a teacher, uh, proximity of a teacher who practices that, and some kind of supervision and learning how it is done. is hugely important. It takes some years for people to learn it.
0: Yeah. That's true with most yeah. things. I mean, you can probably learn a fair amount of physics just by reading physics books, but you're probably better off going to Princeton and studying under you know, real experts. It's
1: same, exactly. It's the same thing.
0: Yeah.
1: The same thing. A person need to follow a genuine path with a real teacher. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe in the, what people talk about. Everybody got their own path. Just follow your, you know, your own thing. Most people will be lost if they do that. Most people really need a teaching, need a path, need a teacher. It's a rare individual who can do it on their own. Most people want to be the exception.
0: As you say, it's rare.
1: It's better to err on the side of humility. You know, because that's, that's a spiritual quality, humility, that makes us see that we have our limitation, and this is really important. Why waste my time? Let me find a real teaching, a real teacher, a real practice so that I can really get into, commit myself to, until I begin to have some freedom, some light, some uh, realization. Then I could think of the possibility maybe doing it by myself. Like that's the way we train our teachers, for instance, in our school. It's it's a seven, eight years training. Mm. After being in the school for years to have some experience or realization, then there is rigorous training. And then when they teach they teach the way they were taught. Before they branch out, find their own way. Then it becomes spontaneous that they do it the way it comes through. But first they need to do it the way they learned it. Otherwise, they'll, their mind can take it in all kind of odd ways and they might have tendencies that's still not worked out.
0: I really respect that. Um, I, w- I was a teacher of <clears throat> Transcendental Meditation for 25 years and uh, <clears throat> I'm no longer in the TM movement, although I have good feelings and respect for everything I went through uh, and I'm not a teacher now I, I just feel like I'm I'm doing a more appropriate useful role doing what I'm doing right now I think it's definitely good to What do you do Rick?
1: You do this in the weekend. What do you do as work?
0: I do search engine optimization which means getting more traffic uh-huh. to people's websites and oh, so I see. I, you know, I'll spend my days uh, you know, getting people to sell more widgets and <laughs> things I like see, that I and see. it's not ultimately what i'd like to be doing my time but it's paying the bills. that's your livelihood okay. yeah that's my that's livelihood and, yeah. and uh, this uh interview show thing is morphing in the direction of being able to do it full-time uh i would love to be able to do it full-time and uh, it's moving in that direction so we'll see what happens okay. You're meeting all kinds of interesting people. Oh, in it's way. fabulous. I just uh, love having these conversations. It's, I'm the prime beneficiary, <laughs> just having a conversation with somebody yeah, like I, you. Yeah,
1: I, I wonder, because I, I was thinking, because you're taking, talking to so many people, everybody got their perspective, and you're so flooded with all these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It must take you some kind of process to, how to, to grapple with all of those and uh, integrate them and... And your mind is probably trying to integrate this and that, and and some of them are very contradictory and different. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting situation you have.
0: Well, I think there was a time when it would have confused me. Now, it doesn't. And you know, a certain amount of it goes in one ear and out the other. But uh, <laughs> but I uh, I have this attitude that you've described, which is that it's all everything has its appropriate place and and it's all good, it's all useful. All all these different teachings and perspectives and so on are each well and wisely put for that person and for those people who resonate with it. And so I just, uh, a little bit like a chameleon when I do all these interviews, and I just kind of adapt to the perspective of the person I'm talking to and try to understand where they're actually coming from rather than squeeze it into, you know, my perspective. I try to expand my perspective and allow it to mature and become more rich and multifaceted. So it's a real evolutionary thing, I feel, from my own experience. I I imagine
1: sometimes it's quite a stretch.
0: Yeah, well, I could use a little more stretching, you know? Yeah, I mean, the more the merrier. Yeah. (laughs) And I think a lot of times I don't really get it. I mean, when I talk to somebody afterwards, I sometimes have a feeling like, I didn't really do justice to that person, I didn't go deep enough, I, didn't, I was too much translating them into my own terms and not understanding them on their terms, but I do my best with the time I have, you know, in preparing yeah. for these interviews and doing... What
1: it- I like about your way of interviewing, I think one of the strengths you have, mm-hmm. which I think can develop further, is the probing. Yeah. You, you don't just let the person speak their view. Everybody will just, they're used to speaking like that. You probe and ask about this, focus on this and that, mm-hmm. and try to find out what are the specifics that this person is contributing to the field.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, it's kind of the way my mind works. I mean, I really actually do, like you, I, I, I guess I have a sort of inquiry going on because I think about this stuff all the time, even while I'm taking a walk or... Skiing in the woods or whatever, I, I, I my mind just sort of dwells on these questions. It would almost seem obsessive, but it feels healthy, and it feels like a, it's a, a way of furthering my own progress.
1: Well, you had a good team. Maharishi. I think, from what I understand, taught a lot of things.
0: He was he, a pretty he, remarkable he was, guy.
1: He was full of wisdom. He yeah. had a whole tradition behind him and mm-hmm. love and all. Because I, I know a bunch of people who've been, you know. With Ramana Mahari, I mean with, uh, Ma- Maharishi for a, a long time and started with him and uh, learned. He wasn't just teaching TM. He was teaching all kinds of things.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and he was a human being. And, you know, as I kind of moved, distanced myself from the, the thing a little bit, I yeah. began to be more accepting of certain shortcomings that I perceived. But nonetheless, yeah. I fundamentally have nothing but respect and appreciation. And I can't really criticize
1: the human being is always incomplete. Yeah. Did you know that? Did anybody tell you that from those teachings? The human being is always incomplete?
0: I think I've noticed it.
1: Regardless how realized they are, they're incomplete because their potential is infinite.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So they cannot be complete. Completion means closing the book.
2: hmm
1: Means you've reached the end. You mean there is no more development, no more learning. So we are bound to be incomplete, and then completeness can show itself in various ways. So as a human being, I'm incomplete. Mm-hmm. I know what, what I know, what I experience is still minuscule to the possibilities.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good
1: attitude. Is- so I'm contented and happy with where, where I am, I'm not looking, I'm not searching, people talk about the end of the seeking, that happened you know, a few decades ago, I am not been seeking, but I'm interested, I'm the turned on kind of guy to life. Find out what is life, what is reality, what is God, what is being, and keeps going.
0: I think seeking morphs into uh, an attitude of exploration and adventure. The seeking word kind of implies a, an emptiness, a craving. A, I'm not going to be happy until I have this. Whereas that, that kind of melts, doesn't it? And, and one becomes. Yeah. It's
1: when the self is dominant, the self is seeking, because the self is empty mm. and it's not real, so it's always seeking. So, but then when that falls away and there's no more seeking, you sort of found or at least disappeared in the finding. And then what happens is that just the unfoldment, the unfoldment of reality. And so, the so learning continues and learning and service. Myself, I learn and service is um,
0: giving what also you
1: giving and helping others in whatever way uh, possible because it's just the nature of being. That it is full of heart. That's one way, you know, somebody is really realize that they've got heart. If they don't have heart that's full of sweetness and generosity and joy and gratitude and humility, they are what I call one-centered being
0: hmm.
1: instead of multi-centered being.
0: Nice. Well, you're a good example of that, Hamid.
1: I'm on my way.
0: Yeah. No, I really really appreciate your perspective, your attitude, your your whole orientation. I think you know some might interpret a statement like, I'm on my way and i'm I've just you know realized only a small fraction of it. Some would interpret that as sort of a kind of a a beginner's perspective, but that's actually in spiritual circles, you know, uh, mature ones considered to be. Uh, a uh, valuable attribute. Beginner's mind. You know, we're all, we're all just beginners uh, in the big scheme of things. And I think, you know, if we have that perspective, I think it's much more conducive to growth. Than if
1: yeah. we as, a, as a human being, I'm always on my way. I mean, yeah, yeah. How, else, how else can it be? Because the human consciousness is what expresses being and being in an infinite in its possibilities. Yeah. And... Human consciousness can never know it all. We can't. I mean, how can we? I mean, there is uh, what happened throughout the history, for instance. You can't know it all. There is the knowledge of each human being. There are billions of people. Each one n- had experiences and knowledge, right? Einstein had his knowledge. Newton has his knowledge. Galileo has his knowledge. Thomas Aquinas has his knowledge. Aristotle has his knowledge. Each one is a universe, we don't know them all, we could know a little bit of some of those. But we have the potential of learning them, that's yeah. the interesting thing. We have the potential of actually, human being has the potential of really, if we let go of some of the delusion that we still don't know we have, of going into Plato's mind and seeing how he thought, for us and learning. The platonic ideas is the way he meant them not through the, the interpreters mm-hmm. so knowledge is endless which yeah. means experience discovery revelation and the freedom and the true realization is that this, this is happening in its own yeah it's, it's freely happening
0: good well i guess we better wrap it up so we we've uh alluded to the possibility of future interviews. And I would like to do that. You and I were talking before this interview about my doing one with Karen Johnson, who is uh, your associate, yeah. and, and then maybe you and Karen w- doing one together sometime. And we, yeah. uh, we've also brought up the possibility of maybe you and Tony Parsons having a little group interview. That'd be interesting if Tony- I,
1: I, I like dialogue. I organize dialogue each year, actually, with different people. Yeah. I like to bring different point of views and have them interact. And inform each other. It's a nice way of, because you know each teacher goes on, goes off with of their own, you know niche, right. their own people, and do their teaching. And they don't communicate. and yeah. They don't talk to each other. Traditions are like that. And I'm thinking because we're all here, it would be interesting conversation.
0: It would be. It's like yeah. cross pollination or something. It,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, something new, kind of right. Some
0: hybrids can come out of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Minister? Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think
1: it's possible. I think Karen, as I mentioned, I talked to her. She's open
0: Sure. to we'll it. Do, we'll do that. She,
1: she's willing to do it. You can interview her, and then after that, we'll see whether we could organize something for two of us together since we collaborated.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Most of this development of this teaching. This, this is an amazing thing. See, be, people have this idea about teaching. Somebody get awakened or get realized and they go on teaching. Mm-hmm. It's not how it happens in this path. This path is being evolved, some human beings, and through them revealed more and more of itself. There were many awakenings, many realizations, but there's a continuing revelation, an expression of reality. It's a, it's a different way that this teaching has happened. I'm not just teaching, I had an awakening, I'm teaching my awakening. That's not the story here. There's a path that's been unfolding where that addresses many people in different places of where they are. There's a lot of knowledge about how to teach this person and that person and the differences between them. And, and different stages they get through, and what are the obstacles, how do you deal with the obstacles in the correct, in a way that's more optimal, more efficient.
0: That's good, and we haven't really done justice to your teaching in this interview, I don't think, um, so that could be more, something for a future discussion, but obviously people can look into it, and you've got your yeah. books, you've got your website, you've got your Ridwan School out in the Bay Area, and. Uh, I'll be linking to your website from mine, so that people can, and listing some of your books, so that people can explore all that you've written. About twenty books, we'll, we'll list a few of them. Let me uh, thank you for this interview and and um, make a few wrap up points. Really enjoyed speaking with you. We could probably go on all day doing this because we both enjoy it so much.
1: Don't you know I'm I'm experiencing something, and I wanted to know whether you're experiencing which it. is, which is we have the same heart.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I don't feel my heart and your heart are two hearts.
0: I don't know if I experience it as clearly as you two, but no. I feel a connection.
1: Uh... I feel it's the same heart and it's full of nectars.
0: Yes, yes. Very and sweet. it
1: feels like, I don't know, it's my heart or your heart or it's a combined one. <laughs> because we're, we're talking sort of about things we're both interested in. <clears throat> so there's a meeting of the heart. And yes, that's, that's not just the because mind. Sometime, for well, some people, as meeting of the mind here, it seems a meeting of the heart somehow.
0: That's the way I, I think I, I do, I think, experience that in most interviews and, and even in, in daily life situations. You know, going in the supermarket checkout line, there's this sort of mm-hmm. you, 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 for, you experience some deep connection with the, the person you're interacting with. Yeah. Um, it's not just what you're saying or anything, there's a, a resonance on the level of being or something. On the level of the heart, as you say, it's good. Okay, Uh, let me conclude. Um, I've been speaking with
1: we've done the interview, and it is good.
0: It is good. (laughs) What was that? That (laughs) That's from some movie or something.
1: Remember the Bible?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. They would say, God
1: created the world and then said, It is good. It is good. And (laughs) so, we say, Our interview
0: is good, (laughs) and it didn't take us seven days and seven nights either. couple of hours. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> not bad. Well, maybe our universe isn't completely built yet. We'll have to see. So, I've been speaking with Hamid Ali, perhaps better known as A.H. Almas, that's his pen name. And he is based in the Bay Area, but he's got books and got a website and all sorts of ways you can interact with him if, if you'd like to do that. This interview is one in an ongoing series, as you're probably aware. There are well over 200 of them now. You can find them all on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there are several different indices. There's a chronological, an alphabetical, and we're even working on a geographical one where you could like look in Bay Area and you'd find Hamid listed. And also there, you'll find a few other things. There is a discussion group, a forum, which we're in the process of perhaps moderating a little bit more strictly than we have, much to the chagrin of some of the participants, but we want to keep it a little bit more civil than it has been at times. There is a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking. That, that's my sole means of support in doing this. There is also a link to an audio podcast, which you can subscribe to through iTunes. There's that, someone just got contacted me this week and couldn't find that link it's, it's on every interview towards the bottom you'll, you'll see it there, it says in the podcast and you can click on that You go into iTunes, subscribe and then you can get all these interviews in audio format so there's all that, check it out thank you very much and what, what,
1: what, what, when you say discussion group are there online discussion yeah group? it's
0: like a forum where people can huh? go in and chit chat about the interview this particular interview and each forum has its own little section for each interview. To have
1: discussion back and forth, kind of discussion. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, about things that were discussed, hopefully, and a lot of times it veers off topic and becomes completely irrelevant to the to the interview that that was done. But we try to keep it on topic as best we can. Okay, that, that's yeah. interesting.
1: So, so people can follow up, discuss it between them.
0: Yeah, and if there's some interesting questions that come up, you know, if you have the time, you could even come in there and answer some questions or whatever. That'd be good. Okay, so that's about it. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Amid. Great talking to you.
1: Yeah, good talking to you.